Courts seem to be so political. President Trump's pick to be a lifetime federal judge has never tried a case and has only been practicing law for three years. Here's what I don't understand. Why is it that more and more of these judges coming from the Trump administration have no experience? I'm going to put in the right judges, okay? I'm going to put in great conservative judges, great intellects, the people that you want. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, this week we're talking about President Trump and the courts. And I'm not talking about bankruptcy court. I'm talking about the rest of the courts. When Trump entered the White House, he had more than 100 judicial vacancies. And with that, the ability to reshape our courts for decades to come. Well, until my old age, how did this happen? We, we spoke with Politico's congressional reporter and editor, uh, Sung Min Kim, about this earlier uh, today. Let's hear that. So Donald Trump has all these vacancies primarily due to one man in the Senate, and his name is Mitch McConnell. He's now the majority leader, a Republican from Kentucky. And we saw the slowdown really begin in 2015 when Republicans took over the Senate and McConnell became majority leader. Republicans in the Senate had really slowed down judicial nominees. So beyond McConnell blocking President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court in 2016, the Republican Senate blocked a bunch of nominations to lower courts in the same ways. Yeah, exactly. You know, they basically just pretended these nominees didn't exist. Yeah, didn't meet them, didn't see them. They're not there. Let's just do a comparison. President Obama inherited 54 openings from George W. Bush in 2009. So Trump, President Trump, receives about twice as many opportunities to appoint judges in his image, I use that term loosely, because McConnell and the Republicans were so effective at blocking Obama's nominees in the last two years of his presidency. Again, tactical forcefulness, unanimity, and clarity by the Republicans with real outcomes. Trump's actually on track to have more judicial confirmations in his first year than any president in the modern era. Do I need to repeat that sentence? More than any president in the modern era. And conservatives are rejoicing. Here is Ilya Shapiro, a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, I think this is one area where Donald Trump has been having great success and a significant impact. Uh, and he's doing so by deferring to real experts in the field uh, that he can trust. Uh, and, uh, and it's working. Uh, at this point, he's made more nominations and had more judges confirmed than anyone in the modern era. I think that's, uh, that's a really big deal because, of course, uh, tax reforms and health care reforms can be reversed or uh, administrative uh, guidances rescinded, as we've already seen. But federal judges are for life for many decades. Look, unlike health care, trade, foreign affairs, where we see a lot of Republican infighting, the judiciary seems to be the one thing that can still unite the right. It's perhaps, I think, the most underreported issue that helped Trump win last November. I mean, you heard it bubbling around. You know, if he gets in there, there's going to be a lot of appointments at his behest. Here's Shapiro again. Well, Donald Trump would not have won the election without the issue of judicial nominations and especially the Scalia vacancy. That's what held the party together, the conservatives, the evangelicals, the legal elites, 
uh, people thought they would splinter, and uh, that one issue really brought them to the polls. And it's worth remembering that federal judges hear cases on gun control, abortion, voter ID laws, immigrant issues. So even while we're all focused on how Washington doesn't seem to be able to get anything done, the Trump administration is, in fact, having a profound and a lasting impact through that third branch of government, the one we often tend to overlook, you know, the judiciary. You know, Sung Min Kim from Politico told us exactly this very point. These nominees can't be filibustered. What happened was in 2013, the Obama administration pushed forward the waiving of the so-called nuclear option, where you need 60 votes to get a judge approved. And and that's not a weapon, frankly, they used much, <laughs> but it was a weapon that the Republicans knew just what to do with. So the, the super slim current Republican majority isn't a problem. He is having tremendous success in the Senate, and it really is one of the untold success stories of Trump's presidency, particularly because he needs only Republican votes to get this done. We, we know that legislation most of the time needs 60 votes in the Senate, which means Democratic cooperation. But on important nominees, particularly these judges who have lifetime appointments, you can get them through pretty quickly. Well, you know, it's interesting that she uses that word, this is a great success story, because I think you can make the argument that if you become so extreme and you end up with with nominees who don't, in fact, meet basic standards or represent what most Americans want, you're going to be facing, again, this huge crisis in legitimacy we've talked about before. If you remember, uh, several of Trump's recent nominees have already faced that kind of a backlash. Four of them have been labeled unqualified by the American Bar Association, unqualified, including this guy, Brett Talley, who was nominated for a federal judgeship in Alabama. Talley had never tried a case. He didn't disclose to the Senate the little fact that his wife works in the White House, which should have come up on his disclosure form about whether or not he had any conflicts of interest. And he worked for a year as um, what he said was a paranormal oh. investigator. You mean like Mulder, X-Files. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, or like Ghostbusters, right? <laughs> who, um, you, who are you going to call? I'll call Tally. But, you know, again, the best people here. Is this really the best we can do in our judgeships as somebody who is, you know, only three years out of law school? School. Another nominee, Jeff Mateer, actually said in a speech that the transgender children around us are evidence of, as he said, Satan's plan. First grader really knows what their sexual identity. I mean, it just it's just I mean, it just shows you how Satan's plan is working and the destruction that's going on. Again, do, is this something we need to have on? Uh, do we need to have religion, uh, this kind of religious extremism on our federal bench? Satan's plan. Satan's plan. Uh, what are there legal precedents there? Is there some Supreme Court decision that uses Satan's plan? He could refer to. Actually, it's interesting. I'm sure there are a number of Supreme, uh, not of Supreme Court decisions, of court decisions here in Massachusetts. But that was from the time of the Puritans. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm thinking Salem. <laughs> and there was something called the witch trials. <laughs> right, of course, the trials. Yeah, nonetheless, yeah, trials. Exactly. And and the solutions. If you I'm were thinking in more was... Monty Python. <laughs> she's a witch. She's a witch. Well, if she's heavier than a duck. Then she's a witch. I think that's kind of, yeah, we're Well, I there just now. hope we don't go back to pressing with stones, you know? <laughs> right. Okay, so this is a good time, maybe even a great time, to bring our guest aboard this week, Alicia Bannon. 
She's senior counsel of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City. Alicia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, clarify, elucidate. What do these judges do? Just walk the typical American, if there is such a thing, through the analysis of why Americans should care. You know, most Americans don't spend very much time in courtrooms. They see them on television. But other than that, kind of not. But these judges, especially these federal judges with their lifetime appointments, have enormous effect on many parts of our life. How does it work? Well, I mean, that's exactly right. Judges have a tremendous amount of power. They are shaping the the legal landscape and they impact our rights. They impact businesses' bottom lines. I mean, one example just to think about is Obamacare, which, you know, obviously has been in the news quite a bit recently. Back when, when it was passed, there was a huge effort to get the votes to pass Obamacare. And then the lawsuits started. And I should say, when the original challenges to Obamacare were brought, most legal experts laughed at them. Most legal experts said these are close to frivolous claims saying that Obamacare violated the Constitution, violated the Commerce Clause, all these different issues that were raised. But that case, you know, if you looked at the way the court had been shaped over many years by largely, you know, you had eight years of a conservative president putting judges on the bench and, you know, presidents before that as well. By the time that case wound its way through the courts, Mm. those claims were not frivolous at all. And it went to the U.S. Supreme Court where it was one vote away from striking down the President Obama's signature legacy by judges. So I think that's just one example of the power that courts have. And you were talking earlier about who pays attention to judges. And I think what we've seen is that historically, conservatives have really understood the importance of the court and the power of the courts in a way that the left really hasn't. And they haven't put as much political attention, mobilization, energy around the issues of judges, the judiciary. They haven't complained in the same way as when we've seen norm breakdowns in the process of appointing and confirming judges. And I think we've seen that in who who ultimately has been populating the bench. Alicia, both you and Ron have pointed to the fact that this is something the Republicans have done with great effect for a long time. And it's worth remembering that this really started with Reagan, who appointed more judges than any other president in history. He had three Supreme Court justices, one chief justice, and 368 district or appeals court judges. But you think of the appointees that Reagan had, and, you know, you remember at the time people were sort of appalled, you know, at how horrible it was that he appointed people like Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think most of us now would weep and clutch the hem of Sandra Day O'Connor compared to some of these people. (laughs) Are the judicial nominees we're seeing right now from the Trump administration a different breed? Can you give us a profile of what they are like? I mean, there's been some diversity among the the judicial nominees. But but on the whole, I think what you're seeing is the result of years of pipeline building, largely by conservative organizations. There's a group called the Federalist Society that has done a lot of work kind of fostering a, a pipeline of judges. So, you know, identifying legal scholars and others who kind of up and coming people who are very, very conservative. And they've built a list. And, you know, they've shared that list with the Trump administration. And so, you know, a lot of the people that we're seeing come out now are really the result of infrastructure that's been built over many years to create this kind of robust bench of potential conservative jurists. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about this federal society because, you know, it's something you see time and again in terms of, I think, tactical mismatch of, of the left and the right. 
it seems like folks on the right are playing a long game. <laughs> a friend of mine, um, the actor Brad Whitford, who was Josh Lyman on West Wing, you know, he's one of these actors who's kind of politically active and he speaks in front of a lot of democratic organizations. He said to me at one point, he, he said, you know, the difference on the left and among the progressives is that they need love. They won't engage unless there's love. <laughs> and on the right, they don't need love. They just need a horizon line and a point on it. And it could take 20, 30 years. I'm in. I'm participating. I'm getting up every morning and I'm pushing the ball forward. It could be three, four inches. But over 10 years, you're going miles. And you see that that Federal Society has been around for a while. It starts in 1982, doesn't under Ronald Reagan. Yep. And then and they've built over time. And then, you know, another kind of big group that we've seen is the Judicial Crisis Network, which has, I think, funded from similar sources. I mean, ultimately, it's it's kind of dark money. We don't know who the, the ultimate donors are, but the sort of underlying, at least shell groups are, are similar yeah. that have been very involved. They were founded in the Bush era to support Supreme Court nominees, Roberts and Alito. And they've become very involved over the past decade in supporting conservative nominees and fighting when President Obama was making appointments. And so they put tens of millions of dollars into, for example, the Justice Gorsuch nomination. I think of Heather mentioning the Reagan administration, 1982, the Federal Society starts. Those judges then uh, being appointed versus the judges now, I think, reflect this ongoing shift in the Republican Party, where now we'd say, look, I, I take a Reagan judge in a second versus some of the folks who are here now. The, the, just the fact that the edge keeps moving further and further toward the right. Uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back with Alicia and Heather. This is Freak Out and Carry On. All right, we're back. Heather? So I have to ask you a question, Alicia. You know, we're talking here about the Federalist Society, and Ronald Reagan's Attorney General Ed Meese actually says that deliberately they're going to go after the judiciary because then they're going to the Reagan Revolution is going to be cemented into America, regardless of what happens in future elections. And I also mentioned Sandra Day O'Connor, and you bring those two things together. Sandra Day O'Connor was, I believe, the last person on the Supreme Court to be a politician. And Mm -hmm. traditionally in American history, we've always had politicians on the courts, especially the Supreme Court, because they are supposed to be able to build consensuses with voters and to understand the mood of the country. And now we're in this weird moment where we have a judiciary that's being shaped largely by outside money and or seems to be anyway, by outside money and by ideology. Is that a legitimate concern? Is that what's going on? And should we try and get politicians back on the court? It's a great question, and I I do think that there's a real issue with a lack of professional diversity on the bench. There's also a a real lack of racial and gender diversity, and we're not seeing that moving in a good direction under the the Trump administration either. But I think there's a lot of areas where we could really benefit from having more representation of diverse perspectives that I think would really enrich the deliberations um, on the court. Public defenders would be another example of people who, who don't tend to have a voice 
in the judiciary. But I absolutely think that we would benefit from having more politicians on the bench. I mean, I think I'm particularly struck by the court's recent jurisprudence on money and politics, where I think they've the story that they've told about how money does or doesn't corrupt our political process seems to be tremendously, you know, reflect a tremendously naive notion of politics. And I'd imagine that if you had more people who actually had run an election who could speak from some personal experience that you might see more pushing back against some of these notions of, you know, what what will and won't corrupt our process. Well, I, I remember I saw the the statistics recently, and as Alicia says, uh, over 90% of President Trump's nominees for the judiciary have been white, and over 80% of them are men. Hmm. So, Heather, are there other times where presidents have been particularly forceful in trying to get the court to reflect clearly their ideology? Well, see, this really interests me, the whole position of the court with regard to politics. And FDR is the obvious place to go. It's not the only court that has been a political court. We've had a number of them. But what's interesting to me about the FDR court is what happens is that FDR gets very frustrated because the Supreme Court is refusing to um, accept the New Deal legislation. They are declaring it unconstitutional. So what he's... Now, what's the composition of the court at that point? Is in... The FDR court. I mean, they're, they're not accepting the New Deal. They tend to be Republicans. They oh, tend yeah, to be I'm wealthy. Sorry. They tend to be conservative. It's like they're men, you know? Yeah, they're they're, they're well, white men. So, okay, right. um, so I was a little, <laughs> looking a little confused there. Just about everyone's a white man <laughs> well, back then. That's right. right. That's okay. right. Well, yes, they're coming out of the 1920s, and yeah. they're coming out of a period, a long period, in which there has been uh, – it's a fairly, fairly conservative court. And what FDR does is he says something interesting, and he says, you know, these guys are all – and I paraphrase – older than God. They're too old. They should be retiring. And if they don't retire, for everyone that doesn't retire, I'm going to add somebody to the court. Now, that's constitutional. I mean, there's no number in the Constitution of how many Supreme Court justices we're supposed to have. And that's in part because when they wrote the Constitution, the judges literally were riding on horseback. So it wasn't clear how many of them they were going to be. And certainly it was not an old man's gig. So, you know, this is this is malleable. <laughs> that's so interesting. So, so back then you wanted a young and vigorous chap. No, no, you had to have one. Because I'm a- circuit riding. I have to go court to court. That's correct. They're, they're on the circuit. God. So, um... Well, that's so interesting. Maybe we should bring that back. Well, this is one of the reasons you thinking. end up with politicians on the court is because they're the ones who know everybody. Because yeah. they're the ones they're the ones who are riding the circuit with yeah. with everybody. I'm just Lincoln, thinking the horses. Lincoln actually, bring the horses back. You've got to ride the horse to the federal <laughs> appeals court. Can you imagine Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> riding a horse? She could pull it off. <laughs> that woman is ferocious. Like I saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, she's a huge opera fan, and I saw her at, a, at an opera down in New Mexico, and it was around the time there was a lot of talk about Ruth Bader. Ginsburg, you know, being too old. And, uh, and Isn't it w- she like bench press 300 oh, yeah. pounds? Oh, yeah. She deadlifts <laughs> like 400. It's, she's great. She's low to the ground. It's great, great legs. So, but, you know, she was there and there was a lot of folks during Obama saying, you know, uh, Justice Ginsburg, step aside. What President Obama put one of one of his nominees, one of his choices to replace a younger person. And basically she says to me, you know, they'll have to carry me out feet first. Forget about it. I'm staying as long as I can stay, and I'm much more vigorous than people think. Bader Ginsburg's like, I make this decision, not you, not the president of the United States, not members of Congress. And, you know, it's something you find again and again where presidents periodically put someone on the court. I think Nixon is famous for this going, you know, the sons of bitches do whatever the hell they want once they get there. And, and I think that's something that is sort of interesting 
that I don't think we think enough about. Once they get to the court, if they're not rigid in some ideological position, if, they're, if they are disposed to grow from the intense and lifelong deliberations that happen in that little room with their other eight kindred, they sometimes do migrate away from the strict designations of appointment. Or what happened with FDR, which is when the the country migrated away from them. And so when FDR threatened to what was called pack the courts, the Supreme Court looked at that and realized they were in real trouble. And that swing vote started to vote in favor of the New Deal. And so to reclaim the legitimacy of the court, they shifted their position. Other courts have not done that. Maybe we can get to them. But I wonder, again, and I want to throw this back to Alicia, I I look at this situation right now and I say we have courts that are way out of step with the American people, with Citizens United, with uh, with Obamacare, with... Alicia, how could this court migrate here? You know, because I think Heather's right. The court is significantly out of step with certainly majority opinion on a whole host of issues. And there are some sense that, Roberts, there there are some migrations or surprises that we have seen. How might they migrate going forward, the court we have now? Or might they, might not Or Or not. Two things. First off, I, I think you're right to point to Justice Roberts. I would say that of of everyone on the court, and I think this is in part temperament and in part the position that he holds as the chief justice, that he is kind of particularly and uniquely concerned about the court's kind of public legitimacy, institutional legitimacy. And, you know, I think we've already seen that in the healthcare decision, for example. A lot of people have speculated that a big motivator for why he ultimately voted to uphold Obamacare was a concern about how the court would be viewed overturning the president's signature legislation on party lines, especially if we have a court that otherwise is growing more and more conservative and who might be concerned about a court that truly is out of step with the public. And, you know, especially with the context of Justice Scalia's seat where, you know, there is a a narrative, a not incorrect narrative of a stolen seat, you know, a seat that really should have gone to President Obama to a progressive nominee and instead due to procedural abuses in the Senate was held over and left to a a Trump nominee. I think Roberts is likely the one to be most concerned about that among the justices on the on the right and the most likely to, you know, sort of potentially be be somebody to to shift votes in the interest of, you know, maintaining the the court's institutional legitimacy in the long term. Yeah, well, well, institutional legitimacy is all, all on the table these days. I mean, you know, look, look at Trump in this period. And I, and I do wonder what Roberts is thinking, watching what we're all watching. You know, Trump mm-hmm. goes after these judges, Judge Gonzalo Curiel, who rules against Trump on Trump University. I have had horrible rulings. I've been treated very unfairly by this judge. Now, this judge is of Mexican heritage. I'm building a wall. Viciously attacks these judges. And on the travel ban, saying these justices, these judges are illegitimate in standing in the way of the power of the presidency to do what's right and do what's best for the American people. That's Trump's parlance. You know, why is Trump challenging the legitimacy of these judges? And what might other members of the judiciary, of course, who are invested in legitimacy, what might they do? 
Well, you know, I'd like to see folks, especially Justice Roberts, who does have this special role as the head of the judiciary to speak out. Actually, in his confirmation hearing, he was asked about that, if he would, at the, you know, if the court was under attack, if the court was subject to kind of an inappropriate politicization, would he speak out as an explainer and a defender of the courts? And he said he would. And to the extent the judiciary is attacked, uh, I will be vigilant to respond and defend it. And I've, I've found it striking that he's been silent in the face of quite inappropriate attacks, personal attacks on judges, attacks on the court's legitimacy, suggestions that the court should should be blamed if there's a terrorist attack, you know, really things that are that why, are over, why over the Why is line. that? Why do you think he's been silent? I mean, it, it is it, – th- I think it's a concern. I think he should be speaking out. I think he's probably afraid that he's going to be seen as dipping his toe in politics. I, I think the problem is that when you're politicizing – when the judiciary is being politicized, you are – you're going to dip your toe into politics because that's what's happening. It's being politicized. But I think that there's a kind of natural conservatism among a lot of judges to really avoid weighing in even when maybe they, they should. So I have a question for you on that. Of course, we all think it would be nice to have – of our norms restored and to restore our norms, maybe not to put that in passive voice, but in active voice. But I'd but, like to meet Norm, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's interesting you say that because that's exactly uh, he, where I was going. Norm comes up every, I mean, is, well, it, is it the guy in Cheers? Is that had, Norm? Where Norm is Norm? Norm Ornstein on Norm Ornstein is, yeah, I'm not sure if Norm said, represents a Norm, though, Norm and Ornstein. I'm just but, throwing that but out. But he said on this issue that what he would like to see, not he, not just him, but he and his co-authors he and other in norm, He and other Norms. Go ahead. Well, the others were E.J. and Thomas, as I recall. But <laughs> but he suggested that we really, in part because people live so much longer now than they did back when we conceived of this system, that is certainly on the Supreme Court, we should have term limits that are limited to a number of years that would allow each president to appoint two so that the Supreme Court retains that anger that it has always had in American society of being the slowest moving piece of our machinery but that it wouldn't be an anchor that never moved at all the way, again, some of these guys who are, who are guys and women who are yeah. planning to live to be 1,046. Term limits. So <laughs> bring back the horses. Bring the horses back. Well, they or at least to be make sure ride. they ride them, yes. What do you think of that? Uh, this is But the term limits, it is a great debate. I mean, I don't know. Could that pass? I mean, would there be some consensus from both sides for term limits there? I mean, I think there's also a question. I I think at least most versions of the proposal that I've seen would require a constitutional amendment. There's there's some some people have suggested various ways you could structure it that might not, but I think most versions of doing that, and I think frankly, probably to have popular legitimacy, you'd you'd probably need a constitutional amendment. And so that that's a heavy lift. I've always thought it's it's a very interesting idea, and I think there's a lot to support it. You know, what you were saying about, you know, wanting judges to be somewhat kind of tethered to the the society that we're in right now, you know, kind of having somebody sitting in such a position of power for generations seems, I think it raises worries about about making sure that our court is is aligned with today's values and that, you know, there's some level of kind of democratic legitimacy in the judges that are currently sitting on our courts. I, I also think that it would help it would bring the temperature down at least a little in the nomination and confirmation process because it wouldn't be for you, – you wouldn't have somebody potentially on the court for 40 years. There would be some regularity. So every every president would expect and know that they would get two appointments. So I, th- I think there's a lot to support the proposal. Aligning the court with values. I mean it would be lovely if there were shared values in some significant amount. 
but certainly these sort of accepted values uh, that do have a long history in America, many of them, uh, having a court aligned with that, that's a, I think that's an accepted goal you know, for many people. Alicia Bannon is senior counsel at the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alicia. Look, before we go, there's just one more thing. I just want to re- resurrect those judges on horseback just one more time. Absolutely think we need an organization. I think you and I should start a movement to say that Supreme Court justices have to be able to ride a horse for, I don't know, 40 miles. You know, that doesn't need a constitutional amendment. 40, I guess, yeah. I mean, that's okay, a long we way have, in a horse, but we, yeah. Why, I would assume so, right? Okay. And we got to have, like, really nice horses and one nag. <laughs> 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 Who gets the nag? Well, they have to fight it out, right? Justice Roberts, <laughs> you're on the nag today. Sorry. Pretty safe bet that it's not going to be Justice Ginsburg. Yeah, right? no. Are you kidding? Not <laughs> in your life. You know, so, I mean, I think think about these circuit riding judges. Look, there were also circuit riding preachers in those days that went place to place to spread the word of God. And in some ways, justice is our secular religion in this country. It really is. You know, people are going to fight and fret, and do terrible things to one another. They'll often not even know the damage they do in the conduct of human affairs. And there's a reason there is a court going way back to Hammurabi, a place in which you tell a story. (laughs) Look at the words, testimony, witness. It's all storytelling. And a place where that story can be told and there'll be a judge who's fair, who's not on either side, who doesn't walk in with a predisposition. That's the whole concept of it. And in some ways, our desperation in needing those judges to guide the conduct of of our affairs of state and the affairs of our lives is a thing that you can feel a desperate need for. So... Heather, a joy to talk about this. And thank you for for mentioning the circuit riding judges. I mean, because it just brought back a whole world that maybe is in certain ways restored or restorable. I'm Ron Suskind, and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.